I'd go ahead and turn back with me to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. For our visitors here, I have now for some months been preaching verse by verse through this epistle. And we come to chapter 3. The text tonight will be verses 18 through 23. And all of these messages are available on our sermon audio, which can be easily found by looking up uh, the name of the church or my name or uh, Paris, Tennessee. Um, They'll be readily available for you. And Lord willing, we will continue in this epistle until we get to the end of the 16th chapter. So let us read again our text for this evening, 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, beginning with verse 18. These are the words of God. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours And you're Christ, and Christ's is God's. I have before shared the story with you about the man who took a cruise from Europe to America. And the man only had enough money to purchase the tickets for the cruise, and so he packed sardines and crackers to make the trip. And every night he would pass by, and he would look over in the dining hall, and he would watch as the passengers ate these lavish feasts only to go back to his room and eat sardines and crackers. And one night as he was passing by the dining hall, the waiter called out to him and said, Sir, uh, aren't you going to come in for supper? And the man informed the waiter that he only had enough money for the tickets and could not afford food. And the waiter replied to him, Sir, the meals come with the cruise. Your ticket is all-inclusive. And this is precisely what Paul was trying to get the Corinthians to understand. Christ had bought them, and He had saved them, and their salvation was all-inclusive. When you belong to Jesus Christ, all things belong to you. Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth, and the sphere of His sovereignty knows no bounds. And to be in Christ is to have everything. Your salvation does not merely equip you with some of the things that you require. Your salvation does not merely provide for some of your needs. Your salvation does not merely solve some of your problems. Your salvation in Christ satisfies and fulfills all that you could ever want, need, or require in this life and in the life to come. And the Corinthians falsely thought that their salvation, though beneficial to them, was ultimately insufficient for all things. They did not understand the maxim that we so often repeat, all of Christ for all of life. And they went to the world and its wisdom to supplement the Christianity. What they failed to realize was that the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world are mutually exclusive. 
Divided loyalties will stunt your spiritual growth and wreck your Christian life. Your godliness will only go so far as your worldliness decreases. Because the two do not make room for one another. If you are in Christ, you must understand that you belong entirely to Him. There is no part of you that He does not own because He has purchased you, all of you, with His blood. And you are not allowed to take Him for worship, but then choose Caesar for education. You are not allowed to take Him for growth and sanctification, but then take worldly philosophy for knowledge and intellect. The Corinthians were behaving as though Christ had only made a down payment on them. As though He on the cross had put a deposit on them, but had not completed the purchase. And they, until that purchase was finalized, still belonged to the world. But friend, Jesus does not split the ownership of His people with the world. Jesus takes full possession of those who are His. And if you belong to Christ, you need not look to the world for insight, or advice, or inspiration, or motivation, or morality, or ethics, or guidance, or any such thing, because all things are already yours in Christ. This was a message that the Corinthians so desperately needed. They were saved out of a culture steeped in humanism and infatuated with worldly philosophy. And though many of them were truly converted, they brought a lot of baggage into their Christian life. And this still happens today. When God saves sinners out of worldviews and mindsets and ways of life that are especially unbiblical and especially heinous, it can take a progressive sanctification to rework their thinking and to reset their worldviews. And they need to realize who they belong to. This is also a message that we desperately need in our day. It's not just for the Corinthians. None of this is just for the Corinthians. We live in the midst of a culture that is always scratching and clawing for our attention and our affection. I'm talking about believers. Christian, you come into contact every day with a plethora of things that would love to just steal your heart and mind away from devotion to Christ and place your hope and your trust in the things of this world. And we need to be reminded that Christ has taken full possession of us and in turn has freely given to us all that we will ever need for this life and in the life to come. And therefore, because of who owns us, because of who we belong to, our devotion must be given to Christ alone. There's five things in this text that I want you to see. The first is this, beginning in verse 18, a caution against presumption. A caution against presumption. Paul begins, he says, let no man deceive himself. Now this is an imperative. This is a command. Let no man deceive himself. The one who is self-deceived, listen to me, is not a victim. He is a culprit. He is the one doing the deceiving. 
The worst kind of deception is oftentimes self-deception. What is self-deception? Well, it's telling lies about yourself and believing them. Self-deception is such a danger because we are far too inclined to trust our own hearts. We are too quick to believe what we have to say about ourselves without holding ourselves to the same scriptural standards with which we judge other things. What kind of self-deception is Paul referring to? Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world. The type of self-deception in view here is an inaccurate self-perception that leads you to believe that you are wise when in reality you are a fool. You have deceived yourself into thinking that you have arrived when you have not even got off the starting block. Apart from an accurate view of God, there's nothing more important than having an accurate view of yourself. It is essential if you are going to be a faithful follower of Christ, to understand something about yourself. But just as none of us fully understand God, would anyone here tonight make the claim that they have just fully wrapped their minds around the depth of the knowledge of God? Well, no, just as, just as none of us fully understand God, none of us fully understand ourselves. And even the most reverential Christian harbors some wrong thoughts about God, and even the most ardent proponent of man's total depravity affirms some faulty thoughts about himself. And more often than not, our wrong thoughts about God have us thinking less of Him than we should, and our wrong thoughts about ourselves have us thinking more of us than we should. Herein lies the double-edged sword of self-deception. When we come to formulate our concept of who we believe God to be and who we believe ourselves to be, we must not be quick to presume. It's a caution against presumption. Our feelings and our notions and our hunches and our insights must be tested by the sure word of truth contained in the Holy Scriptures. That's a practical example of this. Well, how many of you have been in a, have you been in a conversation that went something like this? You're talking about some sin that has been committed. And you say, that is sinful, that is wrong, God hates it, God will judge it. And then someone else says something to the effect of, well, I know that's a sin, but I just feel that God is really loving and forgiving. Just, I just feel like He will overlook this. Or... You will say, well, yes, I know that men make mistakes, but I just feel like all men are, they have some good in them, and we need to to look for the good in people. Notice that Paul was not criticizing just something that unbelievers were doing in the world. He says, if any man among you, church members do this, God's people do this. The Corinthians did this. You do this. I do this. We are often tempted to base our belief upon God on our feelings. On what we want Him to be. We are often tempted to formulate our perception of ourselves on what we wish we were and not what we actually are. 
Notice he says the word. If any man among you seemeth, seems to be, believes himself to be, thinks that he is wise in this world. Now, let me say this again, because I know that we have covered the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world, because really chapter 1, verse 10, down through about the end of chapter 4, are really one unit in this epistle. It is not the wisdom part that Paul is so adamantly opposed to. It is the in this world part that's the problem. True wisdom is a good thing. The wisdom of God is a good thing. And there are some who fail to understand this. And they create sects which are often really just cults that glorify and praise stupidity and ignorance. And that's not what Paul is doing. I've shared this story before as well. I was at, a, was at an event one time and there was a younger man who was preaching. I'm using that word loosely. And the whole time he was bragging about how he does not use notes and he does not read commentaries. He just preaches as he feels himself to be led by the Holy Ghost. And he was walking around as he was spewing this and he was talking about how Paul preached against wisdom and how knowledge puffs up. And he even went so far as to say repetitively, I'm just ignorant. I'm just ignorant. I'm, I, I don't read those big commentaries. I'm just ignorant. And I remember thinking, well, at least you've said something that I can agree with you on. But see, that's not Paul's point. That's not Paul's point. Paul is not preaching against studying to show yourself approved. There's nothing wrong with wisdom, but there's something very wrong with worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom. To be wise in the eyes of this world is to obtain insight and directives for life from this world. That's what he's talking about here. Looking to man to answer your questions and solve your problems. That is what Paul is telling us not to do. Worldly wisdom creates a humanistic, man-centered worldview that teaches you to place your trust in yourself and other sinners just like you. Do you see the problem with that? Do you see the problem with those who belong to Jesus Christ? Those who profess to have the word of truth in front of them. Those who profess to have the means of grace, of, of prayer and communion with God. Do you see the problem for us to then turn around and seek guidance and counsel and knowledge and devotion from sinners just like us? When you place your trust and confidence in yourself, you begin to think that you have arrived to a level and achieved a certain status that you most assuredly have not. Paul will later say in this same book, any man that thinks he stands, take heed lest he falls. See, because you've already arrived in your mind, you don't need preaching. You don't need teaching. You don't need godly counsel. You've got it all figured out. These are the type of people that Paul was dealing with in Corinth. But they are just as abundant in our day. Whenever teaching comes to these type of people, they presume it's for someone not as smart as them. 
Whenever rebuke comes to these type of people, they presume it's for someone not as holy as them. Whenever exhortation comes, they presume it's for someone not as accomplished as them. Anytime they hear a sermon, they immediately think, I know who needs to hear this, and it's not themselves. I tell you, I would rather have someone who comes in and says, I've never read the Bible, I don't know any Christian doctrine, this is my first time attending church, I have no clue what I'm doing here, but I understand that I don't know, and I want to learn. And have someone coming in thinking, he's the next John Calvin straight out of Geneva, when in reality he knows nothing. When a self-deceived person who thinks they're so wise, hears the preaching of the word... Their immediate response is, well, this doesn't apply to me. I've got this all figured out. And what you're really doing is you're robbing yourself of the means of grace, which is the ministry of the Word, when you're doing that to yourself. Listen to me. Your pride will ensnare you. Your self-deception will entrap you in a web of your own folly, and it will rob you of the things that are truly yours in Christ. Because if you want the things of this world, you will not have room for the things of Christ. And if you are going to have the things of Christ, He will not leave you room for the things of this world. Your faulty view of yourself will lead you to think that you are above the need of the ministry of God's grace. The Corinthians thought they had risen above the need of preaching. They thought they had risen above the needs of the church. They thought they had risen above the needs of the ordinances. They thought they had risen above the needs of spiritual leaders. What a dangerous place to be. A dangerous place to be. Now the Bible's solution to this problem is quite interesting. Say, so what, what do you tell someone who is, who is trapped into this self-deception and thinks that they are so wise? What do you tell them? Well, you tell them what Paul says in verse 18. Let him become a fool that he may be wise. If, if you find yourself flirting with the wisdom of this world, what should you do to avoid this damnable self-deception? Well, Paul says, become a fool. To understand this admonition, you must know that there are two perspectives pitted against one another. Man's perspective and God's perspective. If you are wise in this world, you are a fool in the eyes of God. And if you are going to have godly wisdom, you must become a fool in the eyes of man. By the way, does it shock me to tell you that the world already thinks that you're fools? The world thinks that we are all fools sitting here tonight. Spending a good Sunday evening, wasting it away in a little tiny building to hear Bible preaching. The world sees no value in that. There's no appeal in that to the world they see that and they think what fools the world has always thought that about God's people because the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness unto him neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned did we not preach that just a couple of weeks ago Sadly, some Christians think that they can impress the world and compromise with the world, and then the world won't think they're so foolish. So many think that. But what they fail to realize is that the wisdom of this world 
the wisdom of God, again, are mutually exclusive. There's no friendship between the two. There can be no relation forged between them. There can be no harmony. They are diametrically opposed to one another. Paul continues. For the wisdom of this world, verse 19, is foolishness with God. God's wisdom is foolishness to this world, and the world's wisdom is foolishness to God. Seeking after a wise and relevant and cool and maybe perhaps academic and scholarly respectable reputation with the world has only caused Christians to abandon sound theology, true commitment and devotion, and to shy away from the truth. Study some of the martyology of the early church. The disciples were not crucified because they were cool. They were crucified because they were fools and insane and renegades and revolutionaries and insurrectionists and insubordinate in the eyes of the world. When Christians attempt to impress the world because they want to maintain some cool reputation, they wind up looking like fools not only in the eyes of God, but also in the eyes of men. You, you won't be successful with this. Anyone ever seen a Christian movie? They're terrible. I mean, they're terrible. Why? Because we thought we could actually make headway in the world by being like the world. Now, I am not opposed to using the means of our age, digital communication and technology and so on and so forth, to spread the gospel. I'm not opposed to that at all. But God has not caused us, called us to be relevant. He has not called us to spread the gospel through the medium of worldly wisdom. He has called us to boldly and unashamedly preach a crucified Christ in a crucified manner. To preach as dying men to dying men and women. That is what we are called to do. He has called us to become fools in the eyes of men. Why? That he might receive the honor. That he might receive the glory. God has been pleased to use the foolish things of this world. The foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. God does not use the wise things of this world. He does not need our help and our innovation. He needs us to be faithful because He uses the foolish things of this world so that all glory and all honor and all praise are laid at His feet alone. We need not compromise with worldly wisdom to maintain credibility with men. Oh well, if we believe that the Genesis account of creation is literal. If we, if we admit that we actually believe the world was created in six literal days, six to ten thousand years ago, if we, if we admit that we believe in that, the world might think we're foolish. Who cares if they think we're foolish? They're wrong. And the only ones more wrong than the Darwinians who believe in evolution are the Christians who think accommodations can be made between Darwin and Genesis. 
had a professor, Dr. Lasilius, who used to say, theistic evolution is nothing more than atheistic evolution without an A at the beginning. And all that is, if you study the history of it, when it came about, in the days of higher criticism, all it is, is it is an attempt for Christians. And you know, I think they really set out with good intentions. And I think if some of those men who originated things like the gap theory and the day-age theory, I think some of them, not all of them, but I think some of them, if they were to see the garbage that that has produced, they would repent with bitter tears. What that was, was just an attempt to be relevant in the world. I could go on and on with examples of this. Textual criticism is another example of this, where we have just decided we want to be relevant These type of compromises that Christians make in order to be liked by the world never bring glory to God and never do any good for Christ's kingdom. If you want to be wise in the eyes of God, you must be willing to reject worldly wisdom and become a fool in the eyes of men. That's what you must do. When Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me, Did you think that meant we were going to be parading down the streets while we bore our cross as men and women cheered us? No. Just as Jesus carried His cross with all the shame and all the reproach and all of the agony and all of the derision of the world around Him, the same ones who shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, are the same ones who then turned around and shouted, Crucify Him, Crucify Him. What does that tell you? That tells you that there's no use in trying to forge some lasting acceptance with the world. Take up your cross, become a fool, so that you might be faithful and wise in the eyes of God. This is the caution against presumption. But now I want you to see, at the end of verse 19 and in verse 20, the cited passages. Cited passages. Paul will now quote two Old Testament passages to demonstrate this point. By the way, quoting from the Old Testament reveals to us that worldly wisdom has always, always stood in opposition to the wisdom of God. It is not just in 2021 that Christians have lived in the midst of this tension. Christians have always lived in the midst of this tension. He says in verse 19, at the latter half of the verse, he says, For it is written... He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. Now, this first citation, ironically, comes from the book of Job. The book of Job, chapter 5 and verse 13, and Paul is quoting Eliphaz, who was one of Job's counselors. Now, you understand, if you know your Bibles, why this is such an ironic quote. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, because this verse was fulfilled in the book of Job in the life of Eliphaz. Eliphaz. He thought he was so wise. He thought he was so smart. He thought he was wiser than Job. He thought he was wiser than God. And he was telling Job everything that Job needed to do. And he was sitting above Job. He thought he had arrived and Job was just this little peon. And he needed Job uh, to listen to him and do what he had to say and obey his counsel. Eliphaz was kind of like that broken clock. That was only right twice a day. Because even in the midst of his foolishness, he said something that was really wise. I don't think he realized he was saying it about himself, but he said something that was very wise when he said, he, that is God, taketh the wise in their own craftiness. 
Before the book was over, God shut the mouth of Eliphaz and took him in his own craftiness. And we see in this passage that the detestation that God has for worldly wisdom and the detestation that God has for those who think they are wise in this world. God uses their own wisdom to hunt them down. He hunts them down that He might judge them. Your sinful thinking will be your own downfall and ruin. Verse 20, and again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. Human philosophy always leads to destruction. Now he's quoting from Psalm 94 and verse 11, proving the same point. Your worldly wisdom might impress men, but let me assure you, it does not impress God. Men flock to the Bart Ehrmans and the Stephen Hawkings, the Christopher Hitchens of this world, but God holds such people in derision. Their thoughts are vanity before the Lord. Those who are wise in their own eyes are useless to God. They are futile to God. They are vanity before the Lord. The wisdom of this world passes away. The teachings pass away. That is why they're called theories. They come today, they're disproven, and then another one comes in their place. They vanish. The wisdom of God is eternally true, forever settled in heaven. This is God's position. It has always been God's position. It will always be God's position. He's not changing his mind about how he feels about the wisdom of this world. Thirdly, I want you to see the conclusion of the principle. The conclusion of the principle. This principle... This principle that the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Look at verse 21. He says, therefore, so we know we're getting a conclusion here. Therefore, let no man glory in men. Believer, the wisdom of this world has nothing to offer you. Supposedly wise men of this world have nothing to offer you. God is calling you to utterly reject the wisdom of this world and all of its pontificators. Do not boast in them. Do not trust in them. Do not look to their teachings. Do not seek guidance from their principles. Now, again, we are not talking about just merely intellectual knowledge. Two plus two equals four in the church and out of the church. What we are talking about are the answers to life's questions. Who am I? Why am I here? How did I get here? Who is God? How do I know Him? How can I be accepted with Him? How can I love Him and have Him love me? Where do I go after I die? What is death? Who should I marry? How should I get married? How should I live my life? Those type of questions. Do not go to the slums of this world to answer the questions that God has already answered for you. Let no man glory in men. Men have nothing to offer for you. A a, a minister, a preacher, someone who does not have anything original within himself, but merely gets out of the way and allows God to speak. Now, in the second half of verse 21, we finally get to the sermon. Everything else was just the front porch. Now we're going to go into the house. 
Let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. Why should we reject the wisdom of this world? Why should we not glory in men? Why should we not adhere to the philosophies of this age? Why does the world have nothing to offer to us because all things are yours? This is the grand objective that Paul has been laboring for three whole chapters to communicate. It's what he's been trying to get across to us. He's not just merely dealing with the surface level problems. What has Paul told us? He says, you don't need worldly wisdom. You don't need human philosophy. You don't need to trust in men. Why not, Paul? We've got some pretty good teachers at this church. Why not, Paul? We've got some pretty good philosophers in Corinth. Why not, Paul? We've got the the latest, greatest scientists. They're writing books. We've got the, the, the philosophers and the political commentators. We've got the Fox News. Paul, why shouldn't we listen to that? Because, brothers and sisters, all things are already yours. In the original, this phrase simply reads, all things yours. All things yours. It's it's this emphatic punch. In Jesus Christ, you have all that you will ever need for life, for godliness, for eternity, and everything in between. What does the Bible mean when it says all things are yours? It means that in the sphere of Christ's sovereignty, he rules over all things and he causes all things to be the spiritual servants for his people and work for their spiritual good. You say, yes, we know that. We have church and we have preaching and we have te- No, all things. All things. This is what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. We are, we are living in the already but the not yet. And, and it's important to understand that. That we as citizens in the kingdom of God, yes, still living in this present world, but because of Christ, because of His death and His burial and His resurrection, that coming kingdom, which has come, has intersected this world, and it is waging war against it, and it is ultimately going to have the final victory. All things are ours. When you understand all that belongs to you, why would you ever look to men? Why would you ever look to men? When you consider all that you have in Christ, believer. Do you, do you know what? If I, could get, if I could get you all to understand one thing. One thing. Especially you new converts. Especially you new Christians that have been in the faith for a couple of months now. If I could get you to understand one thing. It would be to understand all that you have in Christ, all that He has given to His people, all that He has purposed to make your possessions, I would do you a great deal of good as you live your life, as you think about how you're going to live it, as you formulate the goals and the plans for your life, as you think about where you're going to go to receive education, as you think about who you're going to marry, as you think about how you're going to build your family, if you could just understand all that you have in Christ, Let's explore this grand theme. I want you to see, beginning in verse 22, the Christian's possessions. So let's consider some of these things that you have in Christ. I don't think, by the way, we could ever fully understand it. 
and we never truly will, all throughout eternity we will still be learning about all that is ours in Christ. Verse 22, Paul lists eight things that belong to the Christian that encompass the whole scope of this passage. And I'm going to break them down into three categories. He says in verse 22, the end of verse 21, For all things are yours, semicolon, 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, all of the ministry is yours. All of the ministry is yours. Think about what Paul is doing here. What were the Corinthians saying in chapter 1? I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. And Paul has taken their rhetoric and taken their logic and turned it upside down and planted it on its head. And he has said to them, you don't belong to them. They belong to you. How foolish it must have been to see these Corinthians arguing about which preacher they aligned with. And then Paul says, you don't understand. I did not give the preacher, or I did not give the congregation to the preacher. I gave the preacher to the congregation. He is your minister. He is God's gift to you. He is yours. The ministry is not a system where men build a fan base and create this cultic following. The ministry is an institution through which God provides His people with spiritual servants. And all of the ministry is yours. God has ordained preaching and teaching and counseling and worship and fellowship and prayer and all the other things. Why? For your spiritual health. But yet, what do we do? We, we neglect these things and we go to the world for entertainment, for knowledge, for teaching, for training. Paul asks, why would you flock to the world to obtain what God has already ordained for you in the church through the gospel ministry? Paul, Apollos, Cephas, they were given to you. Yet you flocked to Aristotle. We could put that closer to home. And we could say, God has given you the preaching of the word, yet you flock to insert political commentator, insert radio talking head, insert wise philosopher. Then he goes on and he says, not just all of the ministry is yours, but all of life is yours. The things of this world, or of life, or of death. This refers to your earthly existence upon this world. See, it is not just eternity in heaven that has been given to the Christian. God has given you the right here and the right now to enjoy Him and live for Him and love Him and glorify Him. This life is yours. Even death has been made your servant. Because it is death that will ultimately usher you into the very presence of Christ. That's why Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul, in that verse, was saying, all things are mine. This life, death, and the life to come. You'll be with Christ either way. All things are yours. This life is not just this thing that you must endure to get to the life to come. Jesus said, occupy till I come. He's given us a work to do. 
He has expectations upon us in this life. We are not just to gather into this room and close the door and pray for some rapture to come and get us out of here. To take the seed of the kingdom, which is the gospel, and to sow it in this world. This life is ours. But not just this life. All of time and all of eternity is yours. Because he will then say, or things to come, or things present, or things to come, all are yours. This life, with its expectations, with its opportunities for service, with its opportunities for spiritual communion, this life is yet a foretaste. In Christ, you have an eternal inheritance that shall never pass away and shall never wax old. Does this not put things into perspective? Christian, how could we feel defeated when all eternity is ours? We need to quit living like church history began last Wednesday and it's going to end next Thursday. Church history did not begin in 1950. You you, you look far too much at the world to judge what Christ is doing in and with His people. How could we be worried about something that might take place next week? All of eternity has been given to us. We become anxious and bothered when we decide that instead of resting in this eternal inheritance, we're going to place our trust in something temporal that will ultimately pass away. We do this about every four years as evangelicals in America. (laughs) Instead of trusting in Christ's eternal kingdom, we want to place our hope in some man that will be president for four years. I I remember last November, I remember people uh, advising us not to start a church plant because it looks like the Biden administration was going to come in and apparently the kingdom of God can't advance when a Democrat's in the White House. I don't know how the kingdom of God ever survived under 300 years of Roman tyranny and Caesars and Germanic tribes and Colosseums and lions and martiology. Apparently God was able to spread the gospel across the world then, but Joe Biden is just the end of the progress of the gospel. I don't believe that. And by the way, I don't believe Trump really helps it much either. Brothers and sisters, we're better than that. We have far more to live for than the results of some election. See, here's the thing about these possessions. These possessions are the very tyrannies that enslave the unbeliever. These very tyrannies that enslave the unbeliever are made subservient to the Christian. Think about the things in this list. Life, death, the world to come, eternity. If you do not have Christ, that is a terrifying list. That's why lost people fill their existence with sinful distractions and they frantically look for politicians and celebrities and social movements and drugs and sex and philosophies because they are searching for something that will prevent them from having to face the harsh realities of life and death in the world to come. 
And what a harsh reality it is for someone outside of Christ. If you are outside of Christ, consider this list and apply it to your life. In this life, you are enslaved to sin and bound up in depravity. Then comes death, which will usher you before a righteous and holy God who will pass judgment upon your life. And then in the world to come, you will spend eternity under the wrath of God for the sins that you have committed. Life, death, and the world to come. And I don't say this to scare those of you who are not Christians, though it should be a fearful thing, but I say this to demonstrate what Christ has determined to give to His people. In this life, Christian, the one who owns all things, Christian, all things are yours. In this life, you are living for the glory of Christ with the indwelling Spirit and the love and favor of God. And then comes death, which will usher you before a righteous and holy God who is pleased with you in Christ. You will behold your Savior face to face. And then in the world to come, you will spend all of eternity in the presence of God, worshiping Him throughout the ceaseless ages. The difference between the Christian and the unbeliever is not just that one goes to church for an hour and a half once a week and they believe slightly different, but at the end they're basically the same people. No, they are radically different people on radically different roads going down radically different paths to radically different destinations. What more, Christian, could you have need of? What more could you desire? Christ has given you all things. The other night, we were fellowshipping with a dear family, and we were talking around the table, and we were talking about these very things. And I said, you know the problem with the prosperity gospel? Do you know what the problem with the prosperity gospel is? It shoots way too low. It shoots way too low. The prosperity gospel says that God's will for you is to be healthy and drive a Mercedes. To own a jet plane. To have money. Really? That's it? I mean, the Bible says all things are yours, and you're telling me that just means I get to drive a nice car? (coughs) Prosperity gospel shoots too low. God's will for your life. God's will for your death. God's will for your eternity. For the whole world. For time itself. Is to be given to you. That you might glorify Christ. And grow in your love for Him. It's not a Mercedes or money or health or wealth or popularity. That He is determined to give you. He is determined to give you His own Son. And all that He owns. You are a joint heir with the Son of God. And lastly, I want you to see, because Paul will now conclude this passage with two theological qualifications. I want you to see the chain of proprietorship. How can all things be yours? Verse 23, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. See, all of these possessions that we've been talking about, they are not given to you directly. You must receive them through a mediator. God gives them to you through Christ. And if you belong to Christ, if you have placed your faith and trust in Him, then all things are yours. And if you do not belong to Christ, if you do not belong to Christ, nothing is yours. Nothing is yours. Your relationship to Jesus Christ determines your relationship 
to the rest of the universe. If you do not have Christ, you are an empty shell of a person. And I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how full your pantry is. You are poor and you are starving if you do not possess Jesus Christ. You have no meaning and you have no purpose. And you are a fool because you do not know the wisdom of God in a crucified, buried, and risen Messiah. All of these glorious possessions are only yours if you are trusting and abiding in Christ. Say, how do I do that? How do I trust and abide in Christ? How do I take part in this divine inheritance? Well, you need to understand that Christ is God's. Christ is God's. Well, obviously, this does not mean that Christ is somehow below uh, or unequal to God in any way. He is co-equal and co-eternal in all of the divine attributes, in glory and in sovereignty and eternality. In what sense is Christ God's? Christ belongs to God in the sense that Christ assumed upon himself willingly and freely in his life a submission to the Father's will in order to accomplish the work of redemption. Christ is God's so that you can be Christ's so that all things can be yours. Christ is God's Because 2,000 years ago, the glorious Son of God descended from off the throne and entered into this world and dwelt among us veiled in human flesh and clothed His deity in the likeness of man. And He came not to do His own will, but to do the will of Him that sent Him. And the Father's will for Christ was not to be popular and to be liked and to be famous and to draw a crowd was to turn the crowds away. It was to become despised. It was to become smitten, stricken, and afflicted. The Father's will for Christ was to live a sinless life and to obtain an active righteousness that He would then offer up on Calvary's cross when He shed His life's blood for everyone who would ever believe in Him. Christ was God's when the Father turned His back on Him and poured out His holy and divine wrath upon His Son who knew no sin that you might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Christ is God's and He has accomplished this grand work of redemption so that His people could belong to Him and all things could be given to them. It's the most blessed transaction that has ever taken place. The worst about you given to Him and the best about Him and all of His possessions given to you. So I ask as we close, are you Christ's? Have you beheld the Son of God with the eyes of saving faith and bowed your heart to Him as Lord? Have you trusted in His death as your only hope in life and eternity? It is not just enough, listen to me, it is not just enough to know that He died. Everyone here knows that He died. The devils know that He died. You must believe that He died and you must believe that He died for you. Death will either belong to you or you, belong, you will belong to death. Which will it be for you? All of these possessions will only be yours if you are Christ's. 
to you who still look to this world to give you what your hearts desire, to you stiff-necked sinner who goes on rejecting Christ, let me ask you, what about this world so allures you that you would have it and reject the darling Son of God? Consider this. What, 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 what does this world give you? It does not give you remission of sin. It does not give you a cleared conscience. It does not give you peace with God. It does not give you justification. It does not give you an eternal hope. It gives you nothing. Sure, you might enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. It might give you that. It might give you one more night of pleasure. But it's an empty pleasure. It will vanish away and perish. You do not have to remain a fool. You do not have to remain enslaved to sin and in bondage to this world. You do not have to remain afraid of death in the world to come. Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. Run for your life. Flee to Him. Look upon Him who was pierced for you. Receive Him through faith. I call you this day to do just that. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in the crucified and risen Savior and come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for the gift of the gospel and Christ's work upon Calvary's cross. We ask, Lord, that you would help us as we endeavor to worship and glorify Christ with all that is within us. May you be pleased to use your word. Make it effectual. Save that one who is nearest hell, who knows not the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, do a great work in your people. Edify them and encourage them. Give us a stronger determination to know that you have given us all things and we need not look to the world for guidance. We have you. We have your word. Help us to trust you more and more. Oh, we love you. In Christ's name, we love you.